Hey everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Motherkind Podcast with me, your host, Zoe Blasky. I am so happy you are here with me this week because this episode is talking about one of my favorite subjects and words ever. That word is matrescence. And the word describes the process of becoming a mother. And I'm so passionate about this word because it describes the discombobulating, confusing cocktail of emotions that happens when we become a mother. When we make that transition from woman to mother, it describes what happens to us physically, emotionally, spiritually, hormonally, all the changes that we go through. And it says that just like adolescence, just like when we become an adult from a teenager, it's meant to be a bumpy time, a time of questioning ourselves, questioning everything. And the reason I'm so passionate about it is because had I known that word, had we known that word when we became mothers, I think I would have found it so much easier to be kind to myself. Had I known it was going to be a bumpy journey, it's meant to be a bumpy journey, I would have been far better prepared and I would have been so much more gentler on myself. I feel so passionately that we need to get this word out to more and more mothers. So this week's episode is with Lucy Jones. She is an investigative journalist and an award-winning author, and she has just written a new book called Matrescence, which is what we talk about on this episode. This episode is going to make you see your position as a mother in today's society completely differently. I promise you, after listening to this, you are going to give yourself a break and go easier on yourself. I hope you enjoy it. Here it is. Just a quick ask from me before we dive into this week's episode. You might not know this, but we are a really small team behind the scenes at Motherkind, but we have a massive ambition to support millions of mothers to feel more confident, happy and empowered. And even though we've got this incredible back catalogue of over 300 episodes, I really do feel like we are just getting started. And often you lovely listeners will ask me how you can support the podcast and help us reach more mums. So I've thought of a really easy way that you can do that because from today you can subscribe to the podcast if you listen on Apple Podcasts, which over 70% of you do. So for just $3.99 a month, you can support our Motherkind mission and you get all the podcasts ad-free going forward. It's really easy. All you need to do is just go to your Apple Podcasts app, find Motherkind, find the section at the top where it says support the podcast and enjoy ad-free episodes. Click on that. You'll then have a seven-day ad-free trial where you can hear what it feels like to listen to the podcast with no ads whatsoever. And then you move on to pay $3.99 a month. And every single penny of that money will go towards empowering more mothers with this incredible guests, ideas, and tools that we share week after week on the show. Thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate it. Whether you subscribe or not, I am incredibly grateful that you are here and thank you for being part of the Motherkind mission. Okay, on to this week's episode. Well, Lucy, I'm so excited to welcome you to the podcast. Having read your incredible 
new book, The Force of Nature, that is your new book called Matrescence. So I guess let's start right at the start. How was your matrescence? Thank you, Zoe. Thank you so much for having me. My matrescence was hardcore. It was, I suppose, the expectations were very minimal of what it meant to become a mother and to have children. I'd always wanted to have kids and I was overjoyed to be pregnant. But I really thought before my eldest was born that, you know, she'd grow in my body like as if my body was a box or something and then she'd pop out and then my life would be, you know, have a child in it, but that I would be the same afterwards, that I would return to myself. And what the experience was instead was a complete kind of existential crisis in a way. It was the most physical, but also psychological, emotional, spiritual, existential, socio-political experience of my whole life. And it blew away everything I thought I knew about myself, about the world, about the things I'd been taught. And it was really an experience of profound shock and learning and love and terror and anxiety. I was one of, you know, the many thousands of women who are diagnosed with postnatal depression. It has been, I think, the defining experience of my life in so many different ways. Obviously, it has been the greatest in some ways because of my beautiful, wonderful daughter. But it has also brought me to my knees in ways that have taken me quite a while to untangle and which led me to research the area of matrescence and write a book about it. My matrescence, I think, has continued. I've had three matrescences. I have three young children. And the kind of early matrescent shock awe and kind of angst has faded, but it still feels like the most defining experience of my life. And not only, you know, the hardest and the most challenging and the greatest in some ways because of my wonderful children, but also a really interesting experience in that I found metamorphosis has been a great element of my matrescence. Like I really feel like I've changed into something very different and that's been kind of interesting to me. It's felt very edgy and kind of hardcore in a kind of way that feels very different to how the maternal experience is often portrayed in the culture of, you know, being this kind of boring, basic, banal experience when actually I think it can be very enlivening as well as very hard. And what are some of those big ways then that you've changed? How are you different? If you think about yourself pre-motherhood and you think about yourself sat here now, What are some of those really big shifts that you've experienced? When my daughter was born, I had this sense that my brain felt different and that something was going on in me physiologically. My attention was very different. It was very focused on her. And, you know, we have this stereotype baby brain, which is actually a misnomer. And we now know through the research that actually the brain through pregnancy fine tunes to become good at what it needs to do. But it really felt like she'd left my body, but she was kind of still there or that she'd never really left. And my brain felt kind of rewired and altered and been reformed. And so it was a massive relief to learn about the changes in the brain and how, you know, it's the most 
significant change that can happen to a person in adult life. We now know because of the brilliant work of a number of neuroscientists that the changes of the brain in pregnancy and matrescence are as significant as those in adolescence. Multiple areas of the brain change shape, change structure. It's a really big deal. It's not a small change. So I think that was something which felt very confusing to me at first and quite disturbing. But the scientific research helped me understand, you know, our brains are really changing in motherhood. And of course, the caregiver brain changes too, which maybe we'll go on to a bit later. And then for me personally, because I think matrescence is so personal and everyone's really different, it has been a real learning about my self-worth. I was a person who became a mother and didn't really know how to look after myself and had no idea how to regulate my own emotions and was very triggered by strong emotions and was very punishing of myself of feeling anything bad. So when I found that my baby cried a lot, as many babies do, I found that extremely stressful before I did my research. I blamed myself for that. And I thought that there was something wrong with me for finding those experiences difficult. So all that is to say that it's been a real journey for me of trying to learn some self-compassion and to become friends with myself and to really teach myself to regulate emotions in a way that I, I never had managed to do as an adult. Yeah, so it's been an experience of, you know, I think I think it's Lisa Marciano or another writer who describes matrescence and becoming a mother as a kind of crucible, you know, in which you're kind of formed and all the things that you don't need can be kind of stripped away. And that has been partly my experience. It has also radicalized me. I think that's been another change and shift. It has made me see the world in many different ways for, I think, a more authentic picture of what it actually is. It has made me realize how hard the work of care is and caregiving. Whereas before I might have thought it was kind of, I mean, I honestly think I thought it was kind of drudgery. And I'm ashamed to say that. And I know that's not the case now. Or that it was easy work. I actually, you know, I have my kids in my 30s, but I went through my whole life till they're thinking care work was easy. And, you know, that is just not the case. It's really big, vital, hardcore work. So I think it has changed me in a way that I've quite a lot of anger about society and about how we treat mothers and caregivers. Yeah, those are a few things. There are many more. Yeah, just a few. Some big size makeshifts. <laughs> when did you first hear the word matrescence and how did you feel when you first heard it? Oh my God, it was huge for me. It was so big. So I remember my baby was about eight, nine, ten months or so. I was blindsided by my early motherhood experience. I'd moved to a new town. I was very lonely. My husband was away working long hours. I didn't really have a support network. None of my close friends were having kids at the same time. I felt like I'd lost myself and I didn't know who I was, what I was doing. I loved my baby, but I couldn't seem to soothe her very well. I thought that there was a maternal instinct and I just wasn't very good at it. I'd had all these difficulties with feeding and I was desperate really. I didn't understand what was happening to me. You know, everyone says, 
enjoy every minute. And I thought there must be something wrong with me if I'm finding it this hard every day. It was just, it was so helpful to read this word. Don't you're going to start me crying now. (laughs) (laughs) I really wasn't expecting to cry. So I read this article in the New York Times by the reproductive psychiatrist Alexandra Sachs. And it really pulled together everything I was seeing and feeling. And she talked about this word that anthropologists use, matrescence. And she described it as the experience of becoming a mother and how it changes us physically, psychologically, emotionally, our identity, our relationships. And she also said matrescence is a time of great joy, which it is, but it's also a time of I can't remember the emotions she said, but, you know, fear and anxiety and loneliness and depression and confusion and bewilderment and all these experiences which I had felt, but felt that they were outlawed. I remember reading it and just thinking, it's not just me. Like, I'm not alone in this. And my shoulders kind of dropped for the first time. And I thought, this is what I feel that it is, which is a a significant developmental time for women and a period of great transition, which I would then learn through. I ordered the book by the anthropologist Dana Raphael. She coined the word. So I ordered this book from the 70s and it turned up and it was very kind of old school looking. And she has this essay that she wrote in it about this concept of matrescence, which is you know acknowledged and recognized as a major life crisis in every society across the world. You know, women are supported in their matrescence through special rites and rituals and customs and extra social support. And it just struck me that that was part of maybe what was making me feel so bewildered was this sense that this major thing had happened, but I was kind of left to it alone for the first time in my adult life, really spending all day, every day alone, very confused about what I was doing. And that's why I wanted to write my book and call the book Matrescence, because it felt like just such a kind and compassionate framing. My hope is that we can say to people, you know, how's your matrescence going? Or what was your matrescence like? To normalise that this is a really, really big thing for people to go through. Yeah, I feel exactly the same. And it's so interesting. Our stories are so parallel in terms of what I felt when I heard that word as well. What I find even more frustrating is not only has matrescence been sort of hidden from, you know, the modern mothers in the Western world predominantly, we've also had the rise of this sort of bounce back idea, which is not only are we going through this huge matrescence, it's not that that's just ignored, it's that it's actively diminished. Because all that people ask you is, you look great. When are you going to get back into your jeans? When are you going back to work? Like as if nothing has happened. And I looked up the definition for bounce back the other day, and it means to recover from a setback quickly, to recover from a setback quickly. And it enraged me. Birthing the next generation is not a setback we have to recover from. Why do you think matrescence has been buried in academic circles. I'm sure it was not easy to get that 1970s book. Why is it so buried? What happened? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because this word kind of surfaced in the 70s. And I think that there are a number of kind of big reasons why the experience of becoming a mother and 
matrescence and maternal mental health have been so neglected. And I think we are living at a time of the last kind of hundred years, you know, they call it the century of the child, the 20th century. And there has been this like huge explosion of knowledge about child psychology and, you know, attachment theory and this focus on the child, which is quite Freudian as well. I mean, of course, a lot of that is really very good, but it also means that there hasn't been that adequate space given to the maternal experience. And then I think you've got your plain old guard, the misogyny and sexism and chauvinism, which runs through our society and our healthcare. And kind of twinned with that is, you know, the continuing taboos. I think we've still got so many taboos around things like childbirth injuries, about feeding, about women's bodies, you know, about shame, stigma around mental illness and maternal mental health. There's a lot of these forces which intersect with experiences of early motherhood. But then I think also if we're thinking about the last kind of 20, 30 years, liberal feminism has kind of disavowed motherhood. You know, there was a lot of in the 70s kind of focus on care work. But certainly for me, when I was growing up, my kind of feminist education was much more about getting ahead in the workplace smashing the glass ceiling, being a good girl boss, you know, all those things to give women more freedom at work, which is, of course, really important. But the kind of motherhood issue, and, you know, most women will become mothers at some point, was kind of shunted. And I think that is really connected with our neoliberal capitalist economy and our kind of social institutions. So I think those are probably some of the big kind of social threads which have silenced this experience but I think we're really seeing a moment now. And I'm sure, you know, you're part of this, Zoe, of that maternal subjectivity and that experience of becoming a mother. People going, oh, actually, like when I had my six weeks check, remember the doctor said something like, we'll do baby and then very quickly we'll do you. It's that kind of attitude, which I think is starting to change of, you know, actually, you know, giving birth is a really big thing. Being pregnant is a really big thing. And there are lots of people who are calling for that six-week check to have a you know, particular one for mothers as well and their mental health. So I think perhaps we're starting to see a change. I 100% think we are. And I think we have so many people to thank for that. You know, your book in a huge part too as well. You know, it's incredibly researched. I was saying to the start, just the research that's in there. And I was so struck when you were saying about the wave of feminism that we grew up with. And it's so true that, but also it's almost like we've been double punched because we're also in this age of intensive mothering. So it's like we have to lean in. You know, the big book of when I was starting in the workplace was lean in. You've got to lean in. You've got to go for it. You've got to go for your promotion. Don't let motherhood get in the way. But there's this thing called attachment. And if you leave your baby for a minute, you might create trauma that's going to affect them for the rest of their lives. We are literally between a rock and a hard place. Tell me about what your research uncovered about that. That's described so well. I mean, what an impossible bind. The numbers just don't add up. Like they're telling me that I have to be with my baby all the time, but I also have to earn money. Like, how do I clone myself? Is that possible? I need to clone myself. I think the phrase intensive motherhood is really helpful. And I, you know, acknowledge the work of Andrea O'Reilly. She's a really great motherhood scholar. And Sharon Hayes, who coined the phrase in the 90s. So essentially, it makes a lot of sense. Intensive motherhood is now practiced, you know, very commonly in the West. And that is this expectations of, you know, lots and lots of time with your children, 
lots of emotional investment and resources, being on hand all the time, being kind of happy and content and a wonderful, perfect mother all the time. And that is correlated with, spoiler alert, poor maternal mental health. And what I think has happened is that our society has kind of freaked out about women getting more freedom and getting into the workplace, but has been unwilling to provide the social infrastructure, quality childcare that everybody can access. And so a social norm of intensive motherhood has developed to kind of oppress and police and control women and to ensure that we will continue doing the social reproductive work, but while not providing the social infrastructure. And if you kind of look back to Bowlby and Klein and those brilliant psychologists who developed attachment theory, Bowlby was really clear that women couldn't do it by themselves. Yes, exactly. It's been misunderstood. It has been misunderstood. And he said specifically... It's crazy to think, I mean, didn't say that in those words, but in those in the, these kind of words, it's crazy to think that any one person, any nuclear family could provide what a child needs. We need the wider society. We need the village. Intensive motherhood is very cruel in that it makes women feel like they have to do it all by themselves. It expects them to. And it's a setup, which means that all women are going to fail, especially when you're, you're you know, most women are needing to work. It just doesn't make sense. It's created this kind of impossible situation. Well, there's a third punch, isn't there, really, which is that we are also working more than ever before and the systems at home haven't changed. So mothers are still doing 70% of the domestic and visible and emotional labour of running and raising, you know, a household. It's just like a triple whammy. And I feel like just the more that we can talk about this and just normalise it, Before we get back to the podcast, I just want to tell you about another brilliant podcast that I've been listening to that I think every single one of us could benefit from. It's called Therapy Works and it's hosted by bestselling author and psychotherapist and friend, Julia Samuel. Julia invites us into her therapy room where she speaks to either a known or an unknown guest about a particular challenge they're facing. So topics range from the difficulties of a divorce, a life-changing illness, to the struggles of motherhood, which was my episode when I was lucky enough to be a guest. Julia provides her guests with valuable advice, and you will find that each episode resonates regardless of the topic. I know that I found that every single episode that I listen to of Therapy Works, I take something from. And what's even more special is at the end of every episode, Julia is joined by her two psychotherapist daughters, where they reflect on the therapy session and share their own insights, which is really my favorite bit. I absolutely love that bit at the end. So just search Therapy Works now, wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode. Back to our episode. It's almost like the solutions are coming. I think they're going to take a long time to really change. But even when I started to understand, like you were talking about, when I started to understand that, and I have so much privilege, my gosh. And I you know, I'm still on the floor some days. I think, okay, this is because the system is just wild. Like it's impossible for anyone to win in this system. Exactly. And I think that's actually really powerful being able to say, of course, I feel like this. Of course, I'm struggling. Of course, I'm feeling burnt out. And it's not individual 
moral failing. It's not you, it's them. It's society. And also it's separating that from the love that we have from our children. And some people say to me, why don't you talk about the joy more? Why don't you talk about the love more? And I'm like, because we all know that. That's the good bit. We need to talk more about this, about the hard bits. And there are tons of amazing people talking. You know, of course the love is there and, you know, it's incredible. But I think the more that we can talk about these binds, the more it frees us. It's like when you can see the bind, you have a chance of wriggling a little bit looser from it. If you can't see it, you can't. So true. And I think also, you know, the love is often seen as this kind of romantic, sentimental love. When actually, I mean, my experience of the love I have for my children, which is quite private and why I haven't put it in the book, you know, at length, it's terrifying, actually, to love a child you know, it's very stressful and it's stressful because you love them so much and there's so much anxiety and it's literally life and death work, care work. And I think that's one of the things which I really didn't realise till becoming a mother of, you know, how our society kind of disavows caregiving or portrays it as this kind of easy, lazy work when actually, you know, it's incredibly difficult stressful work because you love them so much and it's all kind of connected and those little like micro ways that we get told that you know how is your time off when you get back from maternity it's a tiny thing really in the grand scheme of it but it's massive because it's just those little undervaluings that somehow caring for a baby is a break from the workplace which is where you add the real value This is why I get so frustrated about, and I sensed your frustration in the book as well. It's like caregivers, mothers, fathers, whoever's doing it, we are raising the next generation. What is more important than that? What is? It's just insane to me how devalued that is in society. Yeah, I mean, I think the obscuring of that work is intentional, or at least it's a condition by which our economic system can function. It's convenient if caregiving is seen as nothing work or just easy work because it means that it can remain kind of unpaid and undervalued. The splitting off of the work from the domestic sphere has led to those who do the care work as being subordinate. I don't know what the solution is. I don't know if it is to have a care wage or, you know, to have universal basic income. I think it's probably to invest a lot more in social support for caregivers, mothers, women, children. But certainly at the moment, it feels like our kind of hyper-capitalist system can free ride on the work of caregivers without even adequate support or healthcare. I mean, it's not even like we're given good healthcare and no disrespect to the NHS or amazing midwives and doctors. But let's be honest, there are some serious issues with postnatal healthcare and how it is delivered and we need to get so much better at that pelvic floor care maternal mental health we're not even like at the kind of point of it being okay there's so much to do what were some of the things that really surprised you in your researching of the book that you would just you know you want to write on a billboard and tell everyone about I think the thing that really surprised me and really challenged what I thought I knew about the world and families was the anthropological research. So I very much thought, you know, the nuclear family was just like, what? 
history, what, what life was, and that everyone raised their young in this kind of two parents in a house together. And I really didn't realize that actually that's a very new modern invention, a kind of experiment, really, which some would argue is failing. And in fact, and with props to Sarah Blaffer Hurdy for this research, because she is the Don, for like 99% of our evolutionary history, we have lived in these extended family groups and these collective caregiving networks. And I remember a, a fact from one of Hurdy's book that if you look at the amount of calories a young human needs to get to adulthood, something like 15 billion or some number like that, there's no way one lone woman would have be able to have provided that. So she would have needed this kind of extensive group in order to actually raise the young. I certainly thought that there was something wrong with me, that my particular nervous system hadn't evolved for this very intense solo one-on-one care without much social support. But actually the work and the research about the history of humankind it really amazed me that actually this is weird. The way we're doing it now is strange. And like most societies in the world do not work like this. We don't expect women to give birth, come home from the hospital injured probably, and then look after a baby on their own at like the most vulnerable time of their life. That's strange. So that most surprised me and it kind of blew apart everything I thought I knew and you know, kind of how I'd been raised as well, I suppose. You know, when I found that out and our brains, I think maybe a part of me thought, well, our brains must have adapted to how we live today. No, no, no. Our brains have not changed from when we would live in a small group of 50. They would all be allo parents, which is a Sarah term. And our brains are the same. We have the same equipment, but we are trying to do a radically different job. And then we're blaming ourselves, not the equipment, not the structure. So true. I had these moments where when my son was born, my second child, I was looking after the two young children, you know, mostly on my own. And there'd be these days where I just thought, I literally can't keep them safe. Like I can't go out of the house and keep them safe. It feels like my nervous system just can't, I can't manage this. I can't meet my basic needs while looking after them. I can't go to the loo. I can't eat. I can't soothe them both. And it was that research which helped me find some kindness to myself of like, you know, we need the village. We don't have the village. We need it. It's so true. What made you most angry? You said you'd been radicalised. <laughs> Me too, actually. I was never that political before motherhood. <laughs> What's made you feel so rageful? Where do I start? Matrescence is very much, you know, I use myself as a case study and, and it's a lot about my own personal experience. But when I look around, I would say many mothers I know have had like a systemic response to childbirth and early motherhood including the most life-threatening experiences like psychosis sepsis severe depression I think about women with prolapse and fistulas and PTSD and women with a clitoral tear and the people who have been so affected by it and I just think how is it okay to say to this cohort go off on your own and enjoy every minute. I just think it's that kind of silencing and minimizing and 
policing of the experience when I see a lot of stress and pain in the mothers I know, which makes me very angry. Also, I think that there are lacunae, however you pronounce that, or gaps in the way that we provide healthcare to women. And particularly, one of my experiences has been a birth injury. And I found the experience of that not being informed in a way that I felt like I should have been about the risks of vaginal birth and the aftercare has made me very angry because I think that there's a point when a lack of information is actually manipulative and that we should be providing women with all of the things which could possibly happen within birth, especially when they can affect someone's life for the rest of their life. What's your hope with this body of work that you've been working on? Are there particular changes that you want to see? Are there things that you want individual mothers to be doing? What's your sort of wish from here? I think one of the really important parts in the book and in my research, which, you know, yes, it is about the experience of becoming a mother. And it's also about my own experiences carrying children and giving birth to children. However, the early neuroscience is telling us now that father brains and caregiver brains change shape. They have these huge physiological changes, hormonal changes, particularly with hands-on affectionate care. And we know that while pregnancy gives women a kind of head start in terms of the physiological changes, we're all born with the neural circuitry to become caregivers. So I think that means that we can equalize and make parenting more equitable. It's not just women who could do, I mean, we, we know this, but I think making it culturally acceptable for men, sharing more in the intimacy of caregiving and parenting is going to be really important. One thing which seems to be very protective for women and for mothers, and particularly with mental health, is social support. So my hope is that we continue to recognise that women need a lot more sort of infrastructure. So we have maternal mental health clinics starting to open, but we need more MBUs, mother and baby units in the country where people don't have to go really, really far away from other children in order to get treatment. There's a big part in the book where I mention a lot of different policies and changes that I think should be made. But my wish with matrescence and my wish with talking about it is that we can recognise and acknowledge, and your work does this so well, Zoe, that it's a really big thing for women to go through. You know, saying to someone, you know, how's your matrescence going? How are you? Feels like a really just important and simple step. And also, as you said, normalising and making it okay to say, I'm feeling really burnt out or, wow, these toddler years are really bringing up some really hardcore stuff for me about my own childhood or so on. Being able to talk about those difficult parts of motherhood and becoming a mother rather than, you know, having to like rictus grin and enjoy every minute. I think that will just open doors of self-compassion and you know, understanding that these vital workers, these caregivers in our society need better support. I'm right with you. And I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? I've been really thinking about this so much since knowing that 
you were going to invite me on. And I can't just say a new society, can I? Of course you can. No patriarchy, no like, you know, racism, no sexism. Of course you can. Doesn't need to be possible. (laughs) Okay. I mean, I think that the gift that I would give new mothers is probably sound very utopian. But I think that we've got so far down the road in our kind of hyper individualistic Western culture of losing sight of care and losing sight of our vulnerability and our interdependence and our interconnectedness. You know, we're living at this time of a kind of multiple crises. We've got the care crisis, we've got the ecological crisis, we've got massive racial and social inequalities. And I think that you know, one of the reasons for that is just this kind of fundamental disconnections that we have from each other and from the earth. So I think I would like to scrap it all and start again with the recognition that, you know, we really need people and we really need, particularly in those early years, there's like a vulnerability there, which for me, you know, I grew up very self-sufficient. I was really independent. I'm really benefited from my privilege, being able to travel, being very autonomous. And that was great, but it was also unsustainable. Can't really be like that if you're raising a family and you can't really raise a family without burning out, without social support and needing other people. I'm really going off on one, but I think probably what I'm saying is that the gift would be it being okay to need other people and it being okay to say like, I need help or I need you or I need more, you know, from society and from other people and to be able to do that without shame. You know, shame is such a big part of lots of mothers I've talked to for my book, for myself. Shame really stops us in our tracks from being vulnerable. So yeah, an anti-shame pill and a new society, if that's possible. Done. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you so much. And I would encourage everyone to, when is the book out? Is it out this week? 22nd of June. Okay, so I would encourage everyone to go and check it out. And thank you again. It's been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I love your podcast. It's such a pleasure. So that was the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Please do share it. If you know anyone that is pregnant, if you know anyone that's a new mother, actually, if you know anyone that might benefit from understanding more about this process and this word, please, please, please do pass it on. And if you want to learn more about matrescence, I've done so many incredible episodes on it. Dr. Alexandra Sachs, who Lucy references, is how she first heard about the word. We've had her on. So if you just pop Dr. Alexandra Sachs, Motherkind, into Google or wherever you're listening to this, it will come up. Amy Taylor Cabaz is another matrescence expert and activist that we've had on. Again, just pop her name into the search bar wherever you're listening to this or onto Google. Pop in the word Motherkind and it will come up. So those are two brilliant episodes you can go and listen to right now if you've got the time and you really, really, really want to dive into this subject. I encourage you to, I promise you, understanding more about matrescence helps us have more compassion and understanding for ourselves. See you next time.